Welcome to the Fatal Exception Podcast, where we talk about hard lessons and soft skills for the software engineer's career. We are your hosts, Bill Evanson and Philip Turpin. Let's get started. All right, so let's uh, extend our previous conversation about things that hurt developers' careers or prevent them from growing in their career. Uh, common things that we see um, both from developers that we've led and and observed as well as our own personal experiences. And it, it's probably be better to uh, uh, share some of our own failures rather, rather than uh, telling about uh, uh, other people. Although over time we may mm -hmm. um, sneak in some anecdotes with pseudonyms of uh, different situations we've seen, but I thought it'd be really interesting if uh, the two of us shared um, some of the anecdotes uh, from our career uh, where we've had missteps in communication and missteps with how we interacted with the people around us and talk about um, how that slowed us down and what, what kind of problems that caused us as well as uh, what we did to resolve those. And so um, I'm going to start with mine. Like I said last time, there's uh, seven or eight of these like turning points in my career where something really kind of dramatic happened and my mindset was uh, completely changed because of it. And one of the ones that I, I constantly come back to, this was, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe 10, 10 or 12 years ago, I was sitting in a, uh, a meeting with several of the senior developers from the organization I was at. And I had called this meeting uh, because I had this great idea about um, how we were going to um, improve some of our dev processes. And it involved uh, some data layer uh, generation using some code generation tools and some uh, uh, POCO generation and SDK generation, um, kind of automatically generating our data access layer uh, using tools to automate this process. And I'd been experimenting with it and I knew it was the right answer because we were spending so much time manually rolling all these codes. So we would go, we would go roll a uh, hand roll a stored procedure and then the data access code. And then all these things that, that over time I was like, wow, there's a, there's a real pattern here and, and we can really improve this process if we just auto generated this entire layer and we could totally do this. And, um, I knew that I was right and, uh, and I was right. Um, the idea, the idea was obvious because it, it was just going to, it was going to save us so much time. So it was very obvious to me. And so I called this meeting. I was like, Hey guys, this is what we're going to do. And I laid it out for them and I'm like, all right, what do you think? And, um, by the time the meeting was over, I had this half circle of, of senior developers sitting around me, pointing their fingers at me, visibly angry. The one developer's face was actually red and I was just baffled because this was, it was the right idea. It was the right thing to do. I couldn't, I couldn't understand why people couldn't get on the same page with me, uh, because the idea was right. And I went back to my desk and just sat there just completely baffled at what in the world had just happened. And uh, it took me a good year and a half to actually just kind of come back from that because it was just such a shock to me that such an obvious idea uh, wouldn't work out well. And um, the funny thing was maybe uh, about a year and a half later, two years later, uh, we ended up doing the thing I wanted um, through a roundabout manner. And one of the developers that was in that room, he kind of nudged me in the side. He's like, hey, uh, we're doing your idea. And like, he kind of recognized what had happened. <laughs> and so it took me a long time and I thought, and I thought about this and like, what in the world happened that this, this idea that we ended up doing and ended up revolutionizing how we did data access in this, uh, dev department. Why did it take two years to get there when I knew at the very beginning, it was the right thing to do. And so I had, 
um, you know, in reflection, I had, I had stepped in with the idea and I'll probably repeat this over and over again, you know, every time we talk, but I had, uh, for the first half of my career, I just assumed, uh, that good ideas just stood on their own merit and that all you had to simply do was, um, express the idea and then people were going to jump on board with you. And, uh, and we'll get it, you know, maybe we'll get into one of your anecdotes and we can talk about how you address this. Um, so I don't want to get into all the lessons I learned right yet, but I, I realized that at that moment that I was going to have to find another way of presenting my ideas. I was going to have to find another way of getting people on board and I've come a long way in that. So I don't know, Philip, does that, uh, does that sound familiar to you at all? So I have different stories, but that is absolutely something that I've heard of before where you have a scenario where you present the idea that when you say that good ideas should stand on their own, that is a robotic way of looking at things and the world, meaning most of the other folks that you're going to work with as an engineer or as an engineering leader aren't black and white. They're not binary like a robot or a machine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for me, what I found in those moments is that if you're not taking someone with you on the journey, and you're not walking through why something is important or more specifically in, in these cases, what is the value, you know, the what's in it for me factor. Every, every idea has to have a what's in it for me factor, right? You can't just do it because it seems like a good idea. It's got to have a what's in it for me for the people that are going to be managing it, for the people that are going to be implementing it, for the people that are going to be paying for it, right? All of those things, there's a what's in it for me factor. So you've got to take people along the journey of your mindset. I actually struggle with this a lot. So one of my biggest strengths as an, as an individual and as specifically as a leader is that I, I can play three years out mm. easily in terms of when I look at a business, once I understand all the, the nuances of how a business needs to function, playing three years out from a, a strategy perspective is like no big deal for me. It's very, very easy. But what I don't do really well and what I struggle with my entire career is actually taking people on the journey mm-hmm. of, okay, well, what is it? Well, why, well, why is that the case? Why are we going to be here in three years? So like so I think the, your brain kind of, you kind of race ahead and yeah. you, you lay out the bullet point format pops into existence in your mm-hmm. head and you get to the conclusion and you forget the fact that the people around you haven't gone through those same mental steps as you have. Mm-hmm. Like in, even in your case, you know, you're, you're, you have observed over and over and over, you've made these pattern connections that this is something that, that you guys did on a regular basis. And it was something that, man, we could automate this because machines are really, really good at but if no one else has made that same pattern connection and the business doesn't understand that the value of automating, you know, what I would call, you know, just that, that boilerplate code that you write every single time, if you can't automate that work, the, the amount of engineering efforts, which typically engineers are some of your highest paid folks. And so if you haven't conveyed that to the business, I mean, you were in a room with senior developers, but you'd also have to get the business on board. You have yeah, to take it on there. <laughs> right. If you can't get the other developers on board, good luck getting non-developers on board. Oh, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. My, I had a completely different pattern, but I would say it manifested, it manifested itself in a different way. I had my communication and I still struggle with this from a personality profiling perspective. I'm a high D high I engineer, which is a weird combination. In addition, when you, if you look at the disc uh, profile, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm an Enneagram eight, which is also unusual for most engineers. Right. Where, where do most engineers fall? I see a lot of sixes, a lot of fives and a lot of ones. And how, how right. does that manifest itself? How is that different than how you are? So I am a, a charge forward, aggressive, challenging type of, you are challenging. 
very challenging. I'm so challenging <laughs> in so many ways. But what is also weird about most aids that I've found over the years, and the, as I started to understand the people that are like me, how do they operate? Your strangely, your gut is really good. Your instincts tend to be really, really accurate. Now, what I one of the flaws I found personally is that when I'm when I get the most frustrated with a situation, my gut is failing me. And so mm. because I have learned to trust my gut over the years, right, I will get really, really mad. But in those moments where I'm the most mad or the most angry, the most frustrated in a situation, I'm almost always wrong. Mm. And that's weird. So my story, my anecdote about that pattern of behavior that I have is that go back over a decade and I was working for a startup and I'm trying to push the company forward, trying to push the technology forward in terms of like what we're doing. And I've been right so far, right? I've been there over a year at this point in time and I'm, I've been right so far. And the CEO comes up to me and he's, he's a mentor of mine now, but like he comes up to me and he goes, you know, Philip, you're right. Almost all the time. Like you are right a lot, but you're not making any friends. And so it's hard to work with you. It's hard. It's much harder for you to get the stuff done that you need to get done because of how you come across. And, and this was, you know, it's funny because I look back and you, uh, 30 year old me, terrible, terrible human being in terms of just like, like I'm aggressive <laughs> and I'm just uh -huh. always angry and, and I'm never refined and I don't listen well. And so he actually, you're a, you're a bull in a China shop, I'm a bull in a China shop, you know, or a Maybe, maybe even worse, like a rhino, right? But he hooked me up with an executive coach. And he said, I'll pay for like the first three months or so. And it changed my world. You know, when you think back to like, it's like I've been taking executive coaching for a long time, specifically on trying to get better from a communication perspective and understanding the dynamics of relationships. And, you know, because the analogy that he used that made me understand so, so well my problem was I found that browbeating people into submission really, really worked. And it worked like all the time. And because I was so right all the time, you know, I, because I could play three years out, it made people really resent me. Right. In most cases. So you got compliance, but no buy-in. Right. Right. Compliance, no buy-in. So he, he said to me, he goes, because I'm an amateur woodworker, right? So I've got a little workshop and I love uh, messing around with wood. And he goes, Philip, he goes, how many, how many chisels do you have in your, your workshop? I'm like, I don't know, like 15. He goes, how many different screwdrivers? I don't know, four or five. And he walks me through several different tools. And he goes, you need that many verbal tools in your communication tool chest to do it right. Because you've been walking around with a 25-pound sledgehammer and literally beating people into submission with it. And that's your problem. Yeah. And I went, yeah. when he threw that analogy out there to me, I went, Wow. I get it. That doesn't mean that the sledgehammer isn't a good tool for some situations, right? Like, <laughs> right. You need it sometimes. It has its purpose, uh -huh. but most of the time you never use a 25 pound sledgehammer, right? You know, so I've worked with you for, um, four years now for, well, I've known you for four and a half years now. And I've, I've actually, even in recent years, seen in, in even recent months, seeing the ongoing changes and exercises that you've been going through where you go to an effort to actually change your resting face, right? From <laughs> what will you call it? Your, your resting engineer face resting or whatever it is. Face. And actually indicate the fact that you, um, that you're happy to see people, for instance. So you may be happy. You just, you just didn't show it. Yeah. You're letting your face 
um, show the things that you're thinking. Yes. And uh, you didn't change as a person. You're not being somebody that you're not. You're just being more purposeful in allowing other people to recognize what you already feel. That's one thing that I've seen. I, but I've seen, I've seen growth in you even in that. And to be clear, you're, you know, it's, it's not like, it's not like you're an unsuccessful individual. You've done a lot of interesting things, but like there was this thing that was preventing you from moving even faster Mm -hmm. and you've been actively addressing it. I find that it's interesting as you're, as you're working your way through your career specifically, the wall you hit is almost always something other people control and you don't. So as an engineer, you can grow in your skill set. You can become a better, a better programmer. You can, you can learn more about design patterns. You can get better at architecture. You can get better at, at data modeling You can get better at all those raw skills, but you don't hit right. your ceiling with your raw skills. You hit your ceiling almost always with how you communicate. I always find that when I'm struggling to make the next move or get something really big across the line. It's not that I don't have all my ducks in a row from it, from an information perspective. It's that I don't have all my ducks in a row and all my people aligned with the path we want to take forward. I have a, um, I have a friend who he doesn't work there now. He kind of retired from there, uh, just cause he'd made so much money. Uh, he'd worked at a, uh, a very well-known investment institution and, um, you know, his education was decent. Um, but we got to talking one day and I kind of knew how much he made. And we were talking about the people that was, that were on his team that worked for him and they were technical folk, primarily more on the mathematical side. And he said, look, these guys, these guys are way, way smarter than I am. They can do math in their head that I couldn't do on a computer. Uh, the difference was, he had the ability of connecting with people and understanding their needs and their incentives and being able to communicate with them. And as a result, his salary was multiples of the people on his team. And they were, and they were way smarter than him. They had the technical skills, uh, but they weren't able to communicate it. And I know that's very frustrating for developers um, to hear uh, because we want to believe that it's primarily the skills that drive us forward but they'll, they're going to top out at, at some point. And the, uh, what's going to take you to that next level is some of these communication things that we're talking about. Oh yeah. Like when I think about, you know, you take, you know, the difference between like a senior engineer for me and like a, a good, strong mid, like an upper mid tier engineer, right. the biggest difference for me in, in those situations is can the senior engineer come to me on my team that doesn't work for my team and explain to me why something needs to change on my team or within my software. Explain to you, not tell you. Right. Not tell me, but convince me that it's important. I can go back to another, another uh, anecdote from like where I failed from a communication perspective. And I was arguing with um, me and another uh, CTO, me and a CTO were arguing about the path forward for a particular effort. And we're both fairly competent folks from a software engineering perspective. And we're really aggressive about it. And this guy that I <laughs> probably hired three weeks earlier comes in and he's this, he's fresh off the boat. You know, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that thought he could be everything. He, he thought he could design and he could code and everything else. And I don't believe in unicorns. And so, you know, but he comes, he walks by the, the room that we're arguing and he goes, Hey, well, why don't you just try it like this? And like, literally, yeah, I wish, you know, I wish this was, was video in some ways, but like you could, I like, I did, I did the whole, 
whatever, right? But I rolled my eyes, exhaled really strongly, and just completely dismissed uh-huh. what he was saying. And then realized a few minutes later that, no, not a few minutes later, probably another 20 minutes of arguing that he was right, that that was a valid approach, uh-huh. even if it wasn't the best possible technical solution to the problem. And it was like, what I realized in those moments is like, and this helps sort of frame up how I approach things now is you got to listen. You've got to understand why something is important. So like my process now, if someone comes with an idea, like you said, like a senior engineer comes into my world and says, Hey, you need to do this thing, or this is important to do this thing. Like if I don't agree with them, I'll ask them to really walk me through it again. Right. I'll ask them to do it again. If I still don't understand, like I'll keep asking questions and I'll have them walk me through their idea again. By the third time, one of two things happens. Either I realize I'm wrong and it's in the other person's right, or they realize that it's not the right fit for me for some reason or another. And it's like just that one practice of listening and assuming that you don't always have the best idea from a communication perspective really allows, and this is like receiving communication. So it's a little more active listening than actually going out and communicating, but like it will help you reach. um, Oh yeah. The word that my coach uses nowadays is uh, a shared understanding, right? You're Mm -hmm. trying to reach a point where both of you understand every part of the conversation. Yeah. So Covey says to understand, then be understood. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that principle. And if you can reach, if you can both clearly articulate either both the problem at hand and the solution at hand, then you've reached a point of shared understanding where both of you can be good with whatever decision comes out of it. Right. And that's, yeah, that's that, that book, um, crucial conversations has a lot of really good strategies for that, but it all comes down to, are you providing safety uh, for the, person across the table because when you come in with the hubris or the 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 pride of how smart you are um at the very least they know that you don't have their best interest at heart you're just trying to show how smart you are you're just trying to kind of like power up over over their idea um and uh you know even worse they they may think that you disrespect them which you actually may (laughs) unintentionally uh you know it's um the the longer i've been alive and the longer i've been you know in this business uh the more i realize how little i know and um i get less and less sure of my ideas as my experience gets more and more like the better i get at software development the more doubt i have in my ability because i realize all the ways that things could go wrong and how many times i've been wrong in the past and being able to stop and have a little bit of self-awareness that you might not be as smart as you think you are uh, will go a long way in helping people come along to your side. Because if you're always kind of like powering up and, and explaining to them or trying to prove to them how smart you are, you're, you're going to do the opposite of what you want. You're going to turn people off. Yeah, um, for sure. I was going to say one thing that you brought a couple of really interesting concepts there that, that I've been wrestling with recently. So again, my speech style, my communication style is, is moderately aggressive. I, uh, don't mind challenging people on their ideas. And I love, I love a good debate, a good fight, a good pushing fight for what's right. Right. Like where we're actually trying to push forward for the yeah. best solution. Mm-hmm. But I was actually talking with someone just recently about the concepts around, uh, respect. My tone can come across as disrespectful unintentionally, completely unintentionally. But because some people care about titles more than I do, I don't care about titles at all, even my own, you know, that can come across as disrespectful. 
in addition, raising your voice in some people's households, they, they, maybe they grew up in a household where no one ever raised their voice, right? Well, that is also disrespectful because that's just not how you operate. And like, it's so, it's so interesting as I don't believe I'm being disrespectful. And in fact, like if you, if you really want to like break down the Philip Turpin psychology, if I am fighting with you, there's a really good chance I respect you. Why? Because I believe that you can take it, right? I have faith that you, you just like me want the want to get to what's best and get to the root of the problem. But in the many people's minds, that's not how it works. And that that's just not a good way of communicating a tactic and a phrase that I like to think about is like, what is the currency of the person that I'm working with? Right. Are they, can I tailor my communication pattern and my, and my, and the words I use and the ways that I'm trying to convince someone to do a thing, kind of tailor that communication by understanding what currencies they operate in. Uh, But you have to layer on top of that, not just like, what do they care about, but also like, how do they like to be treated? You know, I watch, I watch engineers over and over and over again, walk into a room and they just state that this is what it is, or this is how it is. But they do that yeah. with a tenth of the context, you know, right? They'll, or, or they'll they'll pick something apart and they'll take some nuance mm. of a thing and just like drill into it. Um, I had this one developer I worked with, and I <laughs> I called him the angry developer, and he kind of laughed about it. But he uh, he'd be like, you would say, well, there's there's that one problem in the over there. And he's like, well, which one? Well, tell me about it. You know, which one is it? And, and like, he wasn't trying to be bad. He was just, he was just so matter of fact. And it was very much a turnoff. And like, I could deal with it because I knew the guy and I liked him, but I could just see people just shut down around him. And I'm like, dude, you can't do that. He's like, but it's a fact. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, it's a fact. You're correct. But are you helping any, are you being helpful? Are you more interested in being right or effective, right? And I think oh, we've yeah. talked about like, this that's, before. That's, but. that's so much about communication. I think that that's funny when you say like those words, you weren't interested in being right, you weren't interested in being effective. And I look at that and I go, that's a big, if you can mentally process that piece of it and just say, no, I'm actually trying to communicate effectively and get to the result that's the best for the business, which will end up being the right result. And I've, I've actually heard developers use the phrase, well, I'm not being myself or I'm being untrue to myself if I do that. And you really need to ask yourself, are you actually being untrue to yourself by making an attempt to be more effective? Maybe, maybe who you are needs to change. I don't know. Uh, but going back to a couple of the things that you were saying earlier, uh, I'm going to use some uh, different words in terms of how you think about this person that you're talking to. If you take a few moments to try to understand what that person's incentives and motives and background are, you're going to get a lot further. You kind of were just saying the same thing, but I think all the time in terms of incentives, like why are they acting that way? That makes no sense. Well, if you kind of, if you default to the belief that most people are not purposely doing dumb things, <laughs> right? The, the, yes, most people in their head are doing what they think is the logical thing. Somehow they got to this conclusion. Very, very few people are complete idiots. Very few. Well, (laughs) we'll 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 stay with that. Very few people are complete idiots, right? Very few people are actively trying to do illogical things or actively trying to harm other people. So why in the world are they doing the thing that they're doing that you so disagree with? But if you stop for a second and realize they're doing the thing that's logical to them and start to put yourself in their shoes and try to understand how they got there, you'll start realizing they may have 
uh, different purposes or incentives mm-hmm. than you. You know, uh, the sales guy is trying to get sales. And so the things he's going to do are going to drive the sales. The QA person um, is judged by how many bugs make it to production. The DBA's primary incentive is, is data integrity. They're not trying to hamper you. They're, they're driving for their own incentives. And if you take a few moments to try to understand what their incentives are, you're going to have some more compassion for them and you're going to be able to gear whatever thing that you're trying to convey in different terms because you understand what's important to them and what's important to them is not necessarily what's important to you. You know, that's so true. I I also want to like add in, like to add on to that, the number of architects or very senior engineers that I've seen that will come into a code base and like instantly criticize Oh gosh! Uh, the way things exist, or w- what yeah. decisions were made in the code base, and then they just rail on it, and they c- can't let it go, and they drop it. They, don't, they won't ever drop the concept. You know, I'm always surprised. The phrase that I use with these guys as I'm trying to mature them is, "I'm like, you guys need to be curious before you're critical," because unless the engineers were being malicious with their decisions, which almost no one is, they're making the decision either through ignorance, which as a senior, I need you to go go help them with that. Or there was actually a business decision or a, a specific situation where they made that decision in the code. And either one of those, in both cases, you should be curious before critical. Right? You gotta if it's ignorance, coming across as critical is gonna shut that person down. And then you're not going to be able to change their behavior. If it was a business decision, then it is in your best interest as a senior engineer coming into a co-base to understand those business constraints around it so that you aren't countering those situations. And I, I just watched that over and over again. It's like, yeah, you're not going to bring someone around to your side by being critical of them. They're not going to be like, oh, wow, I really like this guy. I, let me, let me do whatever he wants. Right. Like, exactly. Cause if you come into a code base and someone has been working on that for a long time, you're not just criticizing the code base to be clear, you're criticizing the person as well. And even a very mature person has a real difficulty taking that kind of criticism, especially if, if you haven't even taken the time yet to build trust and taken the time yet to understand all the context. And yeah. and to be really clear with yourself too, just a little humbleness, please. Go look at something you wrote six months ago <laughs> and like see how good that is. Uh, my guess is you'll uh, you'll be a little embarrassed. Yep, I always say I always say go look at your code from a year ago if you need a little dose of humility. Oh, um, I wish if if I could just take my name off of every commit <laughs> that I made, you know, past six months ago or whatever, I would be much happier with my life because then I wouldn't have to take the blame for all the terrible decisions I've made over the years. But the context of what you, the reason why you made that choice back then, it was either through ignorance or it was through a business constraint or a product constraint or whatever it was, and you might or you might have been dealing with some tech debt in the code. Yeah. Or I just, or I just, I've learned some things, you know, I've learned some Mm -hmm. things in the last six months or the last year, you know, I better be better than I was a year ago. And so old me didn't know what new me knows. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I think that those are the the principles of being curious and this, this will, again, if you want to, if you're uh, wanting to be a senior or heck, if you want to be a leader, the number of gross code bases that I've come into over my career as both a high level engineer, as well as a leader I, I don't even know if I can count them, right? Like, there's just a lot. And you, yeah, uh-huh. it's fundamental. Yeah, it's just fundamental. I mean, like, the number of prototypes that I've seen that were in production. And then you're asking questions about like resiliency and you're trying to understand, well, why did we do this thing? Oh, well, we weren't given time to harden it. Okay. Well, then that tells me as if I'm their leader at this point in time, how do we create space so that we can harden the thing that's driving our business? 
and allows me to have conversations. It's not that I have an ignorant team. It's just that there was a time constraint at the time. Yep. And we didn't think this thing would last for more than three weeks. But here we are. We've woken up, you know, seven months later and it's still running in production. So, yeah, that curious before critical mindset will help so much tamp down the negative conversations and the negative uh, feedback that you're about to give and allow you to process for a little more time. Yeah. And I think when you come into these conversations, you know, we're, we're stuck on this code base one, but it's so central to what we do. People know what the situation is for the most part. Most people know they're not happy with things that are happening <laughs> and, and they acknowledge it. And if you provide a little safety by, you know, acknowledging like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, but stopping and just acknowledging this is where we're at and kind of ignoring like how much you dislike the situation and just figuring out, okay, what's the next right step that brings some safety to the people that you're, you're talking with. Cause they're immediately put at ease because they don't feel attacked, right? They're oh, yeah. going to, okay, what's the next step? What's the next right thing to do? And you become a partner rather than an antagonist. Mm-hmm. When you can clearly talk about, and that's one of the things that I love, love about it. I love about the concept of like just talking about what is. I'm a big fan of talking about what is. What Not is blame on anybody? Right. In the case of uh, you know unscalable code, but our, right. our but our business is now scaling to a certain point where we need it. That's just a fact, right? I mean, we're not blaming anybody for the way that the code looks. Hopefully You're not mad at anybody. We're not mad at anybody. We're just acknowledging the way that it is, and then hopefully you're soliciting those people around you to help you formulate the right decision. Right. And again, you go back to a principle we talked about earlier about walking people to your conclusion. Even if you have a foregone conclusion in your head, how do you bring them along with you from a, a, a vision perspective? And like, here's what it could look like. How do you pull out of them the right answers? Because if you can help them say the things that are in your head without you saying them, they'll be 100% bought in and you don't have to actually convince anybody. It's now their idea. It's now their idea. It's not their idea. That's one of my favorite things about um, Dale Carnegie you know, is don't be upset if it's someone else's idea. Make them think that it's their idea. You can get a lot done if you don't care who gets credit for it. Right? Like that's the, you don't have to be right. We just have to be effective. And so it doesn't matter that the junior engineer on the team came up with your idea or said it out loud first. Great. Let's dive in and make make it happen. And tell you what, if you want allies going into the future, one of the best things you can do is constantly point out people's great ideas. Mm-hmm. When you're in front of a crowd and someone comments about how good something is, oh, John did that. You know, oh yeah, or especially if someone's complimenting you, if you can redirect that, be like, man, I would love to take credit th- for this, but this other developer did that and that's amazing mm-hmm. or, or calling it out uh, in an email or, or whatever it is. If you do that over time, people are going to want to be on your team. They're going to mm-hmm. want to be around you because compliments make you feel good. And you're not, and this is not, again, this is not about being someone who you're not. It's just about making sure that you're doing the things that you'd want done to you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, if, it's funny. We've, we've kind of beat around it a little bit. But so much of the principles that we we're talking about really have the foundation of trust. The foundation you know, of trust. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big, big fan. Like you can't criticize someone if they don't trust you. And we say that you can, but you're not going to get the results you're looking for. They have to be able to trust you. They have to be able to trust your, they have to be able to trust you in a couple of different levels. They have to be able to trust that you are competent, that you know 
what you're talking about, that you have a competency in the space, but they also have to entrust your intent, right? You talked about safety a little bit earlier. Like if you're criticizing someone, they have to trust that you have their best interest in heart when you say the thing that you're about to say about the code base or whatever it is, you know, so like that trust is super important. If that trust isn't there, you have to wait until the trust is there. Unless there's a really darn good reason to break that paradigm, right? Like I, I get it. Sometimes mission critical situations, you might be in, in a situation where you, you have to move have quickly. Enough, you have to move quickly, but that is not most of the time. Most of the time you have to wait until there's a really clear established bed of trust. And then you can more effectively communicate. So like that's, we hadn't really like said that explicitly, but like when I'm talking about things like currency or I'm talking about those types of phrases, what I'm actually saying is you're trying to build that trust layer up so that you can have the conversation that you need to have. It builds slowly over time. Uh, you can lose it in a moment if you're not careful. Yep. Uh, but once you have it, there's almost nothing you can't do. Right. Exactly. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the fatal exception podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking. If you want to contact us, you can find more information at fatalexceptionpodcast.com or you can email us at contact at fatalexceptionpodcast.com.